Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp on the New Books Network's History Channel. I'm here to discuss today Andreas Galeshanka, his new book, John Rawls, The Path to a Theory of Justice. Andreas Galeshanka is the Assistant Professor of Political Science at Wake Forest University. Welcome, Professor Galeshanka. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So this book was published actually earlier this year by Harvard University Press, Again, it's uh, John Rawls, The Path to a Theory of Justice. What prompted you to study John Rawls's political and philosophical visions in the 1971 A Theory of Justice, r- rather than writing a complete intellectual biography? For introductory purposes, please also provide a very brief overview of Rawls's process of achieving a tentative reflective equilibrium, including those far stages of the original position. Uh, Well, for one thing, I find the theory of justice uh, a very interesting work, especially its core idea that um, political and political philosophy should show citizens that they hold shared beliefs and values, even though they might not see these shared beliefs and values. And also that the major social problems can actually be uh, addressed from the position of these shared beliefs and um, values. I think to to the supporters of this vision, um, Ross's book offers a a hope to be worked for. And for critics, I think it's, uh, we can put it as an interesting misunderstanding, which should be studied um, further. So I think this this core idea is, is very uh, interesting and important. Uh, philosophically, I also find uh, in it a very appealing vision of how we defend or justify our political and ethical judgments. Um, so Rawls argued that we want to arrive at a reflective equilibrium, which uh, which, as he called, was a state of affairs in which our intuitive judgments about justice match the principles which are meant to explain this uh, intuitive justice. So this this twofold idea that you know we make uh, judgments about justice and sometimes we don't know the reasons behind them, and then political philosophy helps us become clearer about um, these uh, judgments, the reasons behind these judgments. I, I find this as a very human and uh, recognizable um, explanation. Um, so that's my uh, interest for. Um, enjoying the book itself. But in my own book, I also wanted to say something about the current liberal debate. Um, I think that a historical work such as mine, um, by showing paths that have been taken, paths that have been left unexplored or not fully explored, I think historical works can have implications for today's political thought uh, as well. So, for example, One of the main assumptions in the contemporary liberal debate is that to respect a person, we have to offer them reasons that they all can accept. Uh, So in this vision, respect is tied to autonomy, that to be truly self-governing, we have to be governed by laws that we all can uh, accept. And so I think that um, my book uh, at least reminds us that Rawls thought that this vision of um, uh, agreement is not is is more loose as he called it than uh, we we expect uh, today. So that uh, even though political philosophy can provide 
uh, a way of uh, ordering our principles. Still, some conflicts, some moral conflicts, it will fail to uh, resolve. And then uh, also as a historical work, I think it shows that Rawls's uh, conception of respect was not tied to a Kantian autonomy until the late uh, 1960s. And so it's possible maybe to return to Rawls's earlier stage of work and uh, try to um, address the contemporary liberal debate in its new uh, terms. So in, in terms of historical uh, work, I think we can have relevance to contemporary uh, political debates as well. And then finally, maybe the more human answer as well is that I think that a complete biography of Rawls would take at least another book and several more years to complete. Uh, Rawls's archives, which uh, I used to a great extent, um, they contain hundreds of notes, summaries, lectures, letters, books of Rawls's, um, and they they provide um, really fascinating material, both into his thought and to, to some extent into his person as well. So to, to, to fully make use of them, I think you do need at least um, another book. How did the 1939 to 1942 Princeton courses with Theodore Green and George Thomas, which included forays into Albrecht Rischel's uh, consummation historicism and uh, Adolf Van Arnack's experiential essentialism, how did this contribute to Rawls's initial, initial non-foundational convergence of liberal Protestantism and neo-orthodoxy? Yeah. So... Uh, Rawls started his intellectual career as a religious person. He was brought up in a religious family, attended a religious school, um, but at Princeton, which he entered in uh, thirty-nine, especially uh, with the start of the Second World War, his religious sense heightened and uh, became much more um, thought out. Um, in the first years of his undergraduate career, he published two lengthy articles uh, on a topic of religion, and his senior thesis, Meaning of Sin and Faith of uh, 42, is also um, on the topic, obviously, of uh, religion. But this was a big surprise to many interpreters of Rawls that you know the author of um, a vision which we could describe as secular liberalism started his career um, as a as a thoughtful religious uh, person and um, that there seeming there's this seemingly that gap between his early religious thought and the later work and so it's an interesting question what remains of Ross's early religious thought and his later uh, liberalism and so I, I argue that what remains is this reliance on the lived experience on a lived Christian experience in the early uh, work as well as the belief that this lived experience is actually shared and so that relates to the later themes of re reflective equilibrium and a shared beliefs of all um, persons um, so in the early chapters of the book I ask how uh, Rawls adopted this strand of religion that justified its conceptual scheme by reference to the lived Christian experience um, I think that a lot of commentators uh, do not mention this influence, but it is core to Rawls's vision of uh, philosophy. And I cite the uh, influence of Rawls's teacher to answer this question, in particular George Thomas and Theodore Gre uh, Green, who who worked in a very interesting time of American theology. That's when uh, American theology wrestled with the inheritance of the of the historicism of Ritchell and uh, and von Harnack, and these these latter argued in their own very different ways that that Christianity should be understood 
by lived experience, not by dogmas, but by lived experience of the Christians, and that it has an essence. So once we set aside, as they called, the historical dross, we can see the essence of uh, Christianity. And so Rawls's teachers, Thomas and Green, they also held these uh, beliefs that writing that, for instance, to understand um, um what God is to see the picture of God. We need to look into the religious experience of um, Christians. Now, neo-orthodoxy, as you suggest, uh, had a different conception of theology, and it, it rested on part uh, in part on the claim that God is a person and God reveals Himself to us. So typically the neo-Orthodox would claim that God revealed himself only once through Jesus, but Ross's teachers uh, used a more expansive notion of revelation, uh, understood uh, uh, to include the more ordinary uh, everyday experiences. And Rawls did too. So he believed that Rawls, uh, that God is a person, but at the same time uh, that God reveals himself in the experiences of uh, sin and grace, so the more ordinary uh, life events. And so combining these two sets of beliefs, the neo-Orthodox believe that God is a person and the his more historicist explanation um, of Christianity as a lived experience, Rawls also understood theology as analysis of experience. I think it's very important. He opens the book, the, the thesis, um, the undergraduate thesis, by claiming that theology is an analysis of, um, of Christian uh, experience, that our goal is to uncover a conceptual framework that explains this Christian uh, experience. So I, I, want, I want to put emphasis on this, that uh, uh, even though uh, Harnack and Ritual may be um, neglected in, in stories about Rawls, they do have a role in showing why uh, eventually Rawls' own philosophy stressed so much the Christian experience and a search for some commonality in it. How and why did European Imago Dei notions of equitable personalism shape young Rawls's participatory political vision, Sands' uh, merit impulses, and the shared experience touted in his 1942 undergraduate Princeton essay, Meeting of Sin and Faith? And what Pacific War events shifted his focus from Christians and non-Christians to the experiences of reasonable persons? Right, so... As you say, um, Ross's theology affected his political vision uh, as well. Uh, of course it did. Uh, it, in particular, uh, Rawls believed that uh, theology should discuss the proper relationships uh, between persons. Um, just like God was a person, uh, so humans, he believed, made in the image of God were also persons, and so they were expected to be uh, treated as persons. I think this, this core very broad claim remains with Rawls for the rest of his career that when we talk about ethics or political philosophy, we are talking about understanding the proper relationships between uh, persons uh, in societies. Now, that said, uh, Rawls's early work, uh, early religious work, is not does not have many extensive discussions about what it means to treat a, per a person as a person. He provides some guidelines, but there aren't um, that many concrete recommendations. Uh, for example, uh, the first claim is that we should not treat people, uh, other persons, as means. But again, here, uh, Ross's thought is not very uh, developed. He thinks that asking a person to bring us a cup of coffee is using that person uh, as a means to satisfy our needs. So perhaps something like the distinction between using a person 
as means and using them as mere means is lacking in Ross's early thinking. Uh, but the idea that we should not treat persons as just means uh, is already there. And a question of what that would mean in a society as complex such as ours is already um, raised. And then second, um, Ross's arguments seem to require a communal um, vision, these early arguments, that uh, he thinks that each relationship with a different human being is a, is a different relationship and valuable in its own right, and that somehow the political sphere should acknowledge the importance of these individual and uh, distinct relationships. But again, he's not very clear of what that would mean in politics. Maybe it would mean listening to every person's opinions, involving them in uh, a vote, all of them. Perhaps, but it's, uh, Rawls does not specify um, what that would mean in, uh, in practice. Now, um, at the end of the Second World War, um, Rawls's thinking uh, changed, uh, as you say. Uh, and it's, it's a big question of what happened and how. Um, thinking about his life, Ross says that we might never know an answer to this question, but he, he cites three events that were uh, influential in his uh, abandoning of the theological concepts. And all of these uh, events, are, in one way or, or another, relate to God's role in this world and the effect of chance. So, uh, an effect of chance. So, for example, Rawls cites an, uh, a case where um, his tentmate uh, was selected uh, to go on an exploratory uh, mission, and uh, Rawls was asked to donate blood. And the only difference between uh, the treatment of the two persons was that Ross's blood was a good fit for the uh, donation and his tentmates uh, was not. And because of this seemingly um, arbitrary difference, um, morally arbitrary difference, um, his tentmate uh, died in exploratory mission. And so events such as these eventually led Ross to think, I think, that uh, we cannot see God as someone who actively intervenes in the world's uh, affairs. So what's left of this theological vision, uh, other than uh, uh, the pol this core of political vision that I mentioned, that we should treat people as persons, um, is uh, that conception of, uh, of philosophy, uh, that we should treat philosophy or theology as analysis of experience and try to uncover these um, shared um, uh, grounds. That's why I was insisting so much on, on Harnack, for instance, in the, uh, my answer to your earlier question. In Rawls's 1946 Princeton graduate essay on ethical theory, how did his idea of physicalism attempt to reconcile ethical theory with, one, logical positivism and axiomatic deduction, a la uh, Kurt John Dukas, as well as, two, quote, normal observations of ethical utterances? So one interesting aspect of working on Rawls's intellectual history um, was seeing how he reacted to the prevalent ideas of the time and the new emerging ideas of the time. Um, I think it's it's really a testament to Rawls's thoughtfulness and openness as a philosopher that um, he not only considered these various ideas, but you can find as a historian various um, ways in which these ideas uh, of his opponents, so to say, trickle down into his own um, thinking. And so uh, Ross's engagement with logical positivism uh, is one such uh, such story, I think. Um, it, it is a very popular narrative about Rawls that he revived political philosophy in the 1950s by saving it from emotivism, which is a, a typical normative strand 
of logical positivism, I should say, which was the typical normative strand of logical positivism. Um, and it is true that Rawls did argue against emotivism. But one of the interesting facts is that he actually drew on logical positivism um, and some of their ethical conceptions, in particular what he calls physicalism, to, to elaborate his own vision of ethics as science. So there's one thing to reject emotivism, but there's another thing to still borrow uh, ideas of um, logical positivism and build a theory of um, one's own. And so Ross's goal in, in this early essay of 1946, so the, the first year of his graduate school, again at Princeton, was to model ethics on science, and in particular on non-foundational logical positivist conception of uh, science. And to do that, he drew on Carnap, Neurath, Popper in particular, uh, and their aim to analyze what they called protocol statements or basic statements, um, and then arrive at axioms that explain these uh, statements. I, I hope you can see how these themes reemerge. Instead of Christian lived experience, now we have basic statements or protocol statements. And instead of principles, we have axioms, which are meant to explain these protocol uh, statements. And I think there are very in, many, many interesting things in this uh, story, other than trying to build our credence and, and ethics uh, by way of compare, comparing it to, to science. And that is, this first, the idea of basic statements. So if we take the idea of basic statements or protocol statements even more so, they were meant to be statements of something uh, extremely um, non-contestable, such as, you know, I am now, I'm finishing the book, uh, the book's conclusion on 3.45 p.m. on January 3rd, 2018. This was just a descriptive statement of what all normal scientific observers were meant to agree. And Ross thought um, that we might try something like this in ethics. As we take an, uh, a basic ethical statement, and for him, th those would be statements such as, this is just, or this is courageous, when applied to particular situations. Um, and then try to develop axioms, or rather principles, which would explain these um, basic uh, statements. So I think that once we turn to post-World War II and Ross's um, post-religious thinking, we see in this scientific vision of ethics at least two uh, interesting uh, things. Um, the idea that to justify a theory, you have to reach a point of equilibrium in which these principles or axioms match the judgments that normal observers make. And then the expectation that there are some ethical judgments that are so basic that every normal ethical observer, which Rawls called uh, a reasonable person, would agree on these uh, uh, st statements. So I think these, these basic ideas, they last into a theory of justice and they form the core of Rawls's argument therein. How and why did the Kelschian pure theory of law allow Rawls to circumvent utterances as emotions, the conflation of utterances as emotions, in order to inquire into situational impulses for and uh, Henry, Henry uh, Sidwick's imperative utilitarianism of perspectives on right and wrong. Also, what were characteristics of a universal reasonable man in his, and his judgments in Rawls's 1947 remarks on ethics and that subsequent Cornell dissertation? I will start with the second part of your um, question about uh, normal observers and reasonable persons, how they are defined. Well, in a scientific theory, 
um, normal observers have to be defined in uncontroversial uh, terms or at least as uncontroversial terms as possible because otherwise uh, you would have to explain why you're excluding certain scientists in this case from uh, this category of normal scientists or normal uh, observers. Um, and the same way in, in, in ethical theory, if you only described a certain uh, um, proportion of uh, the human population as, as normal observers or as reasonable persons, you would have to explain why uh, uh, the other part of the population is uh, deemed to be unreasonable. And Rawls did not want to do did not want to do that. Um, he wanted to keep the definition of uh, a reasonable person as universal as possible so that he did not need to defend this definition um, against excluding many uh, other persons which uh, others would ju- which would judge as reasonable. And so when you read the definition, it's, it's, it's really an uncontroversial one. For example, there are, there are three main qualities which Rawls emphasizes in reasonable persons. So uh, reasonable uh, persons have the ability to understand and use the canons of evidence by which they justify their right to hold an opinion. Second, they have the knowledge of these canons. And three, they have the willingness to submit the judgments of these canons. So this simply the ability to understand the canons of evidence, knowledge of these canons, and then the willingness of these uh, canons. It seems like this description applies to um, every um, uh, human person, and that's what Rawls uh, meant to do. Now, this gets more complicated. Rawls excludes Hegelians, for instance, as not ex- uh, exhibiting scientific temper, but um, that more complicated story uh, should probably be left aside. Now, to the first part of your question, um, Rawls's first secular theory of ethical judgments, which he called imperative utilitarianism, was a very formalistic theory, and in in that regard, it differs greatly from a theory of justice. A theory of justice gives us um, guidelines for organizing our society. It tells us, so to say, how to behave. Uh, Rawls's first uh, ethical theory was an analysis of our reasons for making the ethical judgments. So when we say, you are courageous, Rawls would ask, why are we making this judgment? And he argued that we use these ethical judgments to encourage rare actions that the speaker thinks will lead to the greatest amount of good and to discourage frequent actions that would diminish the amount of good. So for example, if we are in a context of war, praising someone as courageous is meant to encourage more such courageous actions which are necessary in a society. So it was an analysis of um, of ethical judgments, but not what they imply, uh, uh, but rather f- uh, into the reasons for which these judgments are uh, made. So it was not a fully-fledged ethical theory that we would see uh, in the later stages of Rawls's, um, of Rawls's life. How and why did Cornell conversations about induction counterintuitively result in Rawls's search for intentional meaning and ethical utterances, detached from meaning holism in uh, Wittgensteinian contexts, his belief in an objective factor among the agreements of reasonable persons, and his ensuing proposals for non-absurd ethical principles that transcended intentionality? 
So this this question uh, alludes to a very interesting um, part of Rawls's uh, intellectual development, and uh, to the second year of his graduate school, which he spent uh, at Cornell University and studied with various Wittgensteinians, Max Black, uh, or at least uh, people influenced by Wittgenstein's uh, ideas, such as Arthur Edward Murphy. Um, and so there were various interesting changes in um, in in his uh, thinking about scientific uh, ethics in particular uh, he turned away from uh, what we just saw in a, in your in my response to your earlier question about the reasons for which we make ethical statements into the actual intentional meaning of these statements so in this, in, in the case of justice that would be statements about what justice actually implies for our actions or for our uh, society so that that's a very important shift which brings us much closer to a theory uh, of uh, justice. That said, um, in in that period in 1947, even though Rawls did ask uh, questions about what our ethical judgments lead us uh, to believe and how they lead us to behave, um, he still restricted his inquiries to the most uh, general subjects. He wanted to see um, when which uh, which of our judgments are um, absurd and which are not, and this this emerges from his from his interest in justifying ethics. That's where Wittgenstein's influence comes in. So Wittgenstein's Wittgenstein has argued that at some point our explanations of why we believe certain things come to a stop, and at that point. As Wittgenstein put it, persuasion uh, starts to take place. Uh, And the same way, Ross wanted to ask, at what point should we stop trying to justify our own views to the critics? And his answer in this uh, year of 947 was that we stop when the rejection of our principles would lead to an absurd way of life. And that's, that was uh, his interest in 1947, to, to see what core beliefs of ours, what core ethical principle of ours um, are so ingrained in our thought that their rejection would be um, absurd. And he, he emphasized two of these judgments. Uh, for example, that we should not um, condemn persons for being ill or we should not treat uh, unjust people as um, ill persons. So you can see how broad these initial explorations are. We're looking at uh, the very basic ingrained beliefs, in this case, about moral uh, responsibilities. These were not yet principles of justice, as we know, for uh, in a theory of uh, justice. Um, that said, I, I do still want to say that even though there were in, interesting and important changes in Rawls's uh, philosophical vision, this notion of absurdity as a justifying force, he still continued to um, elaborate his scientific vision of ethics. Uh, so, for example, he developed um, the notion of an objective factor um, that resides in ethical situations, which you mentioned in your uh, question. So Ross asked, if it's really true that some principles are so ingrained in our thought that their rejection is absurd, why is it that we as human beings hold these um, principles of justice? What explains that all of our holding these principles of justice? And his answer was that at that point is objective factor of ethical uh, situations. Uh, Just like in science, or as you put it, just as our common perceptions are caused by and controlled by an objective order of events, uh, 
So we have some reason to think that there's a common objective moral fact which causes and controls our moral judgments. So I, I take the statement to be the uh, ultimate um, um, reliance on his on his scientific vision that now we have a analogy to observation and uh, this positing of a, conject, uh, of a common objective moral uh, fact. That will disappear as um, Rawls revises his um, arguments in the later years. After Rawls became a professor at Princeton, how and why did a 1950-51 to 51 reading group on the 1944 theory of games change his conceptions of personhood, his advocacy for equal rights claims, and life goals as well as moral laws inherent in his idea of moral freedom with limited state interference? So that, that's another in, uh, a chapter in Rawls's life. And as you can see uh, and uh, st- state in your question, it, it appeals to uh, very different ideas. So now we're moving away from Wittgensteinians to, to game theory. Uh, and that too, this game, game theory too, has an influence uh, in the formulation of Rawls's uh, ideas of, um, of moral and political philosophy. And in particular, uh, we see in, it, in this time period uh, the development of his conception of um, autonomy. Not yet a Kantian autonomy as independence of, of contingent circumstances, but more broadly a conception of autonomy as reliance on moral uh, law. Um, so the question then becomes, uh, you know, how, how did Rawls understand this conception of autonomy or this self-governance? Um, and there are two parts of the, to this answer. Um, first, we want to recall an earlier uh, writing from, a 19, uh, from 1946 when Rawls returned to Kantian uh, ideas in which he thought he described the highest human freedom as uh, obedience to the moral law. So uh, if, we, if we as human beings want to be most free, we have to organize our life in such a way that it follows the moral um, law. So given that idea, we, when we come to the uh, early 1950s, uh, when Rawls studies uh, game theory and discusses economic works, we see an addition to, um, to, to this idea of autonomy um, as ability to determine one's own conception of a good life. So if, if the Kantian autonomy refers to our ability to follow the moral law uh, and the principles of justice that uh, they imply, uh, the economic ideas of game theory refer to one's choice of a uh, good life. And here we find Ross's arguments that individuals should be uh, given a freedom to determine what they themselves deem to be as a good life. And so it's an interesting, um, I should mention that in the later years, these two visions uh, of autonomy um, are combined into one common vision. So it's a um, determ- uh, if, uh, our ability to determine um, the what is a good life, um, as well as uh, ability to follow the moral law and the principles of justice that that requires. But at this point, in the 1950s, uh, Ross's arguments still treat them as as separate ones, not not conflicting ones, but as as separate um, visions of uh, freedom. So why does Ross um, decide, why does Ross think that uh, one should have a right to determine one's own good? Well, he gives uh, at least two reasons. One is he believes that there is no such thing as the highest good. 
so that even if we try to impose uh, a certain uh, way of life on a person, we cannot uh, provide an argument to show that um, our chosen vision is uh, the highest sort of uh, good. And then second, even if we did know what the highest uh, good was, um, if we tried to impose that good politically on persons, society would be, as he puts it, a game that no one wants to play, which means that politically this would require uh, such um, enforcement and uh, violations of liberty that uh, it would not be a society that we would uh, desire. So these are two interesting uh, reasons, um, realist uh, reason as well, for not wanting to impose a specific way of life on um, on persons. I think this should be interesting to critics of Rawls as well, to the realist critics of Rawls, which, who, who argue that Rawls ignores uh, political uh, institutions and the broad facts of life, at least in this case, uh, or when Rawls defends our freedom to choose the kind of life we want to live, Rawls definitely takes these uh, strictures of life into consideration. So in these early years, the two parts of uh, conception of autonomy are, are still stated separately, not linked, but in the later years, he would link them as one shared conception of uh, autonomy. On that note, how and why did these reconfigurations frame Rawls's idea of justice as fairness as one's good in an interest-based political economy premised on the entwinement of liberal politics with liberal economics? Also, how and why did the pure case experiment generate Rawls's principles of equality and institution-helmed functional inequality or support thereof? Right. So it's um, it's an interesting question uh, of what kind of economic system would be required by the principles of justice that Rawls uh, himself uh, depends. And at least we can see from these early writings that it is an uh, economic system in which one is allowed to uh, so to say, purchase what one uh, desires, and I think the the reasons um, the reasons behind this um, stricture are the same as the ones I mentioned in an answer to your earlier question. That namely, the imposition of uh, another system uh, would require such violations of liberty um, that we cannot desire uh, a system of that kind. Um, that said, whenever Rawls talks about um, our choice of a conception of a good and our pursuit of that concept of that uh, good life, he always talks about uh, uh, the limits of justice that are imposed on us. And I should have said that in an answer to your earlier question uh, as well. That even though we can decide uh, on a conception of a good and pursue it, we still have to do that within the limits of uh, justice. So there are some limits to this. Uh, to this uh, pursuit. But as we'll see um, in the theory of justice, these limits are, uh, at least Ross atten uh, attempts to expand these limits as far as possible. Now, this, the second part of your question about the pure case uh, experiment, um, I, I, uh, I think it refers to a very important conclusion. And that is that um, when we are comparing the various systems uh, of social cooperation and various systems of justice, our um, stand, our criterion for evaluating them is equality and not some other uh, standard. Um, for instance, it's very typical of us to say, uh, well, our, our current society is not just, but in comparison to what went before, 
we are much more uh, advanced in this path towards uh, justice. But according to Rawls, that's the wrong way of, of um, looking at systems of justice. What I, have, what I just said may, may well be true that we are uh, far along, but when we are deciding between the societies that uh, are the most judge, uh, just, our standard uh, of evaluating them is always equality. So we start with completely equal treatment of persons economically and politically and we stay there unless we can show that the system of social cooperation um, can uh, be better than the initial equality so in the later uh, arguments this would uh, become known as the difference principle that we are allowed to introduce inequalities in our society uh, insofar as we can show that the least advantaged person persons in that society are still better off in this unequal society than they would be in a society marked by complete political and economic um, equality. So I think, I think this is a very um, important uh, conclusion, which sets uh, Ross's arguments for the uh, later years. But as a sort of a side note, I should add that this is the one of the beginnings of, of uh, Ross's many thought uh, experiments. So um, as as we discussed, uh, Ross's goal and political philosophy was to provide a princi principles of justice, which would explain our our judgments about justice and um one way to do that would be through the various historical analyses which would be perhaps um very interesting but more time consuming and ross's own solution would be to provide was to provide a thought experiment which would quickly clarify um our intuitive ideas of uh, justice and so he he tweaked this experiments for many years and uh you know your earlier question was how did Rawls uh, himself arrive at this reflective equilibrium? And he did that through a good 20 years. Uh, he's, he started out uh, in the early 50s with uh, this first version of uh, experiment in which he established the baseline of equality. And then he tweaked various parts to arrive at the completed version of it, uh, arguably by the late 50s or perhaps a little bit uh, later. Uh, but this initial conclusion that we start with equality and we move from there on only if it improves everyone's condition, including those who uh, are least well off, uh, I think it's found already here and it's, it's uh, very important for Ross's later political vision. By 1952, how and why did Stephen Tulmin's philosophy of ethics by example, rather than an inquiry into truth, as well as Ross's constitutive rules for ethics and universal practices help revamp justice or his notion of justice into bins of reason and logically loose institutional reconciliations of competing claims that a would guide discussions and b would assess individual acts as justifiable right so in um in uh, when Rawls became um instructor in Princeton, um, having finished his PhD, um, he he attended a course of uh, Geo Urmson, um, a philosopher from Oxford, and he, he talked to him as well. And this introduced um, the various Wittgensteinian uh, ideas to, to a greater degree even than uh, in 1947. Uh, so this, as you can see, this engagement with Wittgenstein, even though it starts as a uh, as a more silent engagement, so to say, uh, increases um, over Ross's intellectual uh, career um, and uh, affects his visions of justice in a, in a great degree. But in this case, um, these conversations with uh, Urmson um, lead 
roles to uh, to read uh, Toolman's examination of the place of uh, reason in ethics. Um, and Ross writes a review of the book, uh, and it's it. It's it's a very influential work on on Ross's own um, theory, and it, it it introduces several ideas which are uh, crucial to Ross's thinking in that time period. In particular, that we should understand uh, ethical reasoning as practices or activities governed by rules. And Toulmin wanted to show that ethical reasoning itself is an activity governed by rules. Th- that's you know, in 1950, when this argument is made, this is a, a radical claim, N- not to us now anymore, because we clearly uh, go by an assumption that uh, ethical reasoning is governed by some rules which uh, allow us to say that's a good conclusion, that's uh, it's not an appropriate conclusion to the argument. But uh, at the time when um, emotivism was still prevalent um, and and its claim that ethical utterances are just expressions of emotions, Toulmin's claim that ethical reasoning is actually governed by rules. It's a practice governed by rules. It was a, it was a radical departure and a very interesting uh, work. So it's it's not, it's not a surprise that Rawls um, rushes to review the book and um, and leaves ver- various kinds of notes on it and, and draws on it in his uh, later on later writings. And so what what. What was needed, according to Toulmin, to show that ethical reasoning is an activity governed by rules was, one, to find um, a criterion which, uh, or the function of ethical reasoning and then to show how various rules um, that are implicit in our reasoning help us to arrive at that, uh, at that function or goal. And Toulmin himself argued that ethical reasoning had a goal of correlating the feelings and behavior of people in society in such a way that makes the fulfillment of everyone's aims and desires um, as uh, as great as possible. So again, we can see how people's people choose their conceptions of good life, and uh, political philosophy, or in this case, ethics, tries to um, make it possible for the variety of people to live out these good uh, lives. And Rawls follows Toulmin's and this um, and this thinking. He writes, reasoning is an activity. It's something that uh, men do. And as an activity, it is governed by certain rules. Now, he adds that these rules are universal. Um, as, as he puts it, the rule-making body of ethical reasoning is everybody. We're not talking about uh, ethical reasoning in the United States. We are talking about ethical reasoning in general. Uh, and as Rawls puts it, if there is such a thing as ethical reasoning, uh, we'll, we'll find the same rules in uh, the United States or any other part of uh, the world. And he also keeps Toulmin's um, idea that uh, the function of ethics uh, is, well, it's a slightly a different version of it, is to solve disagreement. So I think that's where uh, Rawls states for the first time very clearly that the goal of ethics is to provide these shared grounds which would then help us solve the various political disagreements that are prevalent in our uh, society. Now, ha- having understood this conception of ethics as uh, ethical reasoning as, as an activity, Rawls also changed his account of uh, principles of justice. Um, so, as you say, he called them bins of reasons, um, which brings in a, a new idea to Rawls and, and one that I, I did want to emphasize in my own book um, that when Rawls provides 
guidance to our judgments. He does this with the cautionary notes that this guidance is still loose and that ethical principles are just uh, bins of the various reasons that might be conflicting within them. So when we think about Rawls now, we think of him as an author of a theory of justice, which states two principles, the principle uh, which gives equal political liberty to us, or rather political liberties, as Rawls was later corrected, and then a principle that organizes our economic and social system to the um, advantage of a uh, least well-off persons therein. And when you state it like this, I, th- I think, I at least initially got the impression um, that we have the, all the rules we need for our uh, political thinking. The principles are ordered and that the first one always trumps the second one. Uh, and so there's that clarity. Um, and b- beyond this, it seems like all p- uh, problems would be uh, solved. But as Ross wants to remind us, um, that's not quite the case, that even the very first principle, uh, our, um, uh, that the fact that we are all granted equal political liberties, uh, it, it contains, to use Ross's language, uh, bins of reasons, it contains all kinds of political liberties which can conflict within one another, uh, with one another. And Ross actually was led by H. H. L. A. Hart to correct his statement uh, instead of saying... Um, equal political liberty as he did in a theory of justice um he later on changed it into equal scheme of uh, political uh, liberties to emphasize the fact that there are different comp- uh, different liberties that might be conflicting so i want us if anything not if anything i want us to to keep in mind that um even though Rawls provides ordering to our judgments it's not an ordering which um omits uh, all problems. We can achieve greater clarity with Ross's principles, but we do not depart from the complexity of moral and political judgments and even perhaps the messiness of the moral life in which we find ourselves. I'll ask you to revisit and elaborate on those mm-hmm. arguments at the, end of the, at the end of the interview. But first, how and why did uh, Wittgenstein's 1953 philosophical investigations, as well as studies by Jean Piaget, frame ideas in Rawls' 1958 twofold basis of justice. In your response, and if possible, um, please address moral feelings based on, quote, normal, natural feelings, overlapping moral views, the, that idea of natural basis, and the self-sustaining reciprocity of justice as fairness. So having finished it, Teaching as instructor at Princeton, Rawls leaves in the early 50s to, uh, to Oxford for uh, as a Fulbright scholar. And there, another interesting, well, several interesting developments uh, take place in his uh, thinking. And, you know, by now you see it as a theme that in each of these intel- periods of Rawls's intellectual life, uh, we see him engaging in a, in a, uh, with a different set of ideas. And I did want to emphasize this in the book to show how many... Um, traditions of of thought Ross engaged with and so in that sense how how interesting his intellectual um, life was not just how open he was as a philosopher but also just how interesting his story uh, was but so he goes to Oxford um, and there he uh, attends lectures of Elizabeth Anscombe who teaches on um, Wittgenstein's philosophical investigation so Anscombe is a translator not just a friend and interlocutor of of Wittgenstein but also the translator of uh, philosophical investigations and then when when he returns to the US he starts working at Cornell as a assistant professor and he um, 
he analyzes philosophical investigations to, to a great extent. He left an index for it as a, a multiple entries uh, for a variety of topics uh, in f- uh, philosophical investigations. The book itself is summarized by topics. Uh, uh, arguments are explained and thought about. It's um, it's an uh, astounding um, amount of engagement just in the notes, not in a published work, but just in his own personal notes. And, uh, you know, those notes on themselves are... Um, are worth exploring in the archive if, if just for that uh, topic. But there Rawls starts drawing on Wittgenstein's uh, concept, concept of the form of life or the idea that the way we live is defined by certain concepts and practices that we take um, for granted. And we want to elaborate to make it explicit those, um, those concepts and practices. And so Rawls um, proposes to his students, he introduces uh, these ideas first in a course, he proposes to his students to view morality, as he puts it, as a form of life, or at least as an aspect as a form of life. And this means, he thinks, that we should understand morality as a natural phenomenon, uh, as a complex of thought, feeling, and action. So we, if we look at the morality, we should look at it not just in terms of beliefs, but also in terms of feelings and the actions to which both of these um, lead. And in particular, in these courses on moral psychology, he asked, Ross asks how moral views, such as his own, are connected with the various moral um, feelings. And initially, these thoughts are really just explorations. And I, I find, I personally find this uh, period of Ross's life the most interesting and the most creative um, part of life, in part because he explores these ideas and he he's open about this to, to his students. He says, let's try this out. Let's see where our thought uh, leads. And so he, he looks at how moral views are connected to um, moral feelings. And to clarify these ideas, he distinguishes between natural feelings and moral feelings. So natural feelings are feelings that do not presuppose moral concepts. So joy, grief, anger, fear, Love, these are the uh, feelings that do not presuppose moral concepts. And uh, and moral feelings are those that do presuppose moral concepts, in particular those of justice. So and the feelings of guilt, regret, remorse are the first ones that Rawls would consider. Um, and, so, and his argument is that these moral feelings develop out of uh, natural feelings through just normal associations of uh, human life. And so hopefully you can see the connection between natural feelings, moral feelings, and then the moral uh, conceptions. In some way, these moral conceptions, the conceptions of justice, will be related to the natural feelings uh, uh, um, which which mark us as normal human beings, so Ross would say. And so Ross explored these connections in his courses on moral uh, moral, um, philosophy and moral psychology, Eventually arguing that a person without moral feelings would also have to be a person without natural feelings, which means that person would not be a normal being as we know human beings. So the first conclusion was that um, all of us have uh, moral feelings and a uh, morality. But his next question was whether this link between natural feelings and moral feelings excludes certain principles as moral principles. So he wanted to ask whether, for instance, whether Marxist principles of justice would be excluded by natural emotions. And his answer was no. Uh, All that natural feelings can do is to exclude very bizarre principles. For example, don't walk on the left side of a sidewalk. 
Ross uh, argued that it's very difficult to generate a sense of guilt for uh, such an arbitrary rule. And so in that sense, uh, moral principles like these cannot be connected to our natural uh, feelings. But it would not exclude any uh, important rival conception of justice, such as utilitarianism, Marxism, um, or, or and so on. What natural feelings do help us realize, Rawls thought, um, was that um, our moralities actually would be very similar, that our moralities would overlap, as he put it, in, in their principles. Moralities resemble one another, he wrote, in their principles, and they have this sort of family likeness. And when he asks, why is it that moralities have this overlapping um, um, content? Why do they have this family likeness? Um, his answer is natural feelings. That when we try to explain um, what it is to respond to another person as a person, and so we come back now to these uh, themes from Rawls's early religious life. So when we try to treat another person as a person, and not as an object, uh, our natural feelings uh, immediately come into the explanation of how we should behave. So joy, grief, anger, fear, love, and um, that's that's where moral feelings come in, guilt, regret, and uh, remorse. So in that sense, um, what these explorations into natural feelings allowed Rawls to do was to uh, at least give a, a reasonable answer as to why, if moralities were to overlap, and he did believe that they did overlap, um, why they would have this shared content. And that is because of a natural um, feeling. You also asked about reciprocity uh, or the tendency to respond in kind and uh, Jean Piaget's story um, in, in Rawls's intellectual life. And m my brief answer is that while Rawls couldn't show that natural feelings exclude certain usual moral views as um, as uh, implausible. He did use moral uh, psychology to argue that uh, those moral views that rest on reciprocity as opposed to sympathy, which was in particular utilitarianism, were actually more stable uh, in that uh, it was, for example, very difficult to be sympathetic to the richest person in a society, if you're the if you happen to be the poorest person, but if you are if you live in a society based on reciprocity, at least you know that though you find yourself in the worst end of the society, um, that this conception of justice is uh, preferable to the poorest person um, in that uh, society. So in that sense. Uh, moral views that rested on reciprocity were psychologically more stable than other kinds of views. How and why did logical positivist W.V.O. Quine's limited approach to meaning holism proper alls to conclude that justification for a conception of justice is relative and, via fixed points or impartial considered judgments, should be critically compared to rival ideas of justice? Kind of already alluded a little bit to that. Also, how and why did this conclusion in turn shape Rawls's 1958 conception of the original position as mutually self-interested and his 1962 aims to achieve reflective equilibrium among ideas of liberty, equality, and the common good? Uh, I, I should say something about meaning holism. So meaning holism is a thesis that a meaning uh, of 
a concept is affected by the meaning of concepts connected uh, to it. So, for example, if we take the concept of personhood, um, a, a conception of personhood um, uh, in which God enters the picture uh, is uh, uh, arguably, at least, a different, a very different conception than, of personhood than the one um, in which uh, reciprocity is uh, treated as a core conceptual uh, connection. So in that sense, I think that meaning holism presents a real problem for a position like Rawls's, because according to meaning holism, if justice is connected uh, to God, then it's difficult to see how it can overlap uh, with a conception of justice that is connected, for example, to historical materialism of Marx. And uh, Thomas Kuhn's historicism makes this point that to, in order to understand a certain, uh, in our case, conception of justice, you have to elaborate all uh, relevant concepts that are related to that, um, uh, to the main concepts you're trying to explain. And once you do that, you'll see that that conception hangs together as a whole. Uh, and in that sense, it's very different uh, from rival conceptions of uh, justice. But when Rawls accepts meaning holism, he accepts not this radical version of it uh, as we see in Thomas Kuhn, but that of his uh, colleague Quine. And, and as I argue, Quine's meaning holism was a limited holism because he held on to the concept of observational statement. In the same way, when it came to ethics, Quine believed that human ethical principles have what he called a common core. And he believed that because he thought that the problems of human societies are, quote-unquote, bound to run to type. And so in that sense, while Rawls did acknowledge um, meaning holism, he didn't take it in the radical directions that uh, more historicist thinkers such as Thomas Kuhn did and his uh, more historicist critics of today uh, would have liked him uh, to take. Um, but it, it, this, uh, this accepting of meaning holism explains why Rawls thought that justification is, as you say, uh, relative to other conceptions of um, justice. So in order for us to defend a conception of justice as fairness, we need to compare it to uh, other typical uh, conceptions of uh, justice, such as utilitarianism or uh, socialism. And to do that, to do that well, you want to lay them out, so to say. You want to lay out their, very, their main concepts, such as liberty, equality, the common good, and see how these main concepts apply to the social problems of the day. And then seeing how these concepts um, solve these problems, what they entail in the solutions to these problems, then we can uh, say that one theory of justice is preferable to um, the other theory, to other theories of um, justice. And th that's why I think that when interpreters claim that Rawls revived political philosophy in the 50s and 60s, that's too strong of a claim, but there's something to it. Um, what they mean is that he brought political philosophy to these problems of the day, that his, his requirements that to justify a theory, you have to show how its main concepts apply to the problems uh, of the day, um, required then to work out the details of these theories and brought political philosophy back from the more formalistic uh, arguments about what an ethical judgment is to the question about um, various problems of justice in our society. Can you explain Rawls's 1958 to 68 Harvard transition from utilitarian happy efficiency to his focus on Rousseau's general will and the least fortunate Kantian and 
Kurt Baer's moral points of view on persons as the ultimate end and Kantian revisions to the original person as mutual respect among rational moral persons who, under a veil of ignorance about their own contingent circumstances, create and then follow universal principles for the attainment of as many primary goods as possible, irrespective of Rawls's uh, two A's like, uh, you know, quote, socialist versus proprietary systems. Going kind of back full circle to the beginning here. Right. And it, it is uh, a very difficult question to answer. Um, and um, I still I still plan to look back into this uh, question, and I hope others will uh, join in as well. Because until 1960, Rawls described himself at least partly as a utilitarian. He thought that he was working within the utilitarian tradition. Obviously, he thought he was rejecting some claims of theirs, but he saw himself as elaborating the ideas that were found in that uh, tradition. And so today, when we when we explain Rawls to anybody, we uh, we present the contrast between Rawls as a social contract theorist, as a contractarian, and contrast that with a with a utilitarian um, approach to to political philosophy. So when we see a self description like this, that I am working from within a utilitarian tradition, I I think it's um, it's it's a difficult claim to believe, really astounding, but it is there. It's there in writing. And so it, it needs to be explained why in 1960 Rawls saw himself as working within utilitarianism, but by 1962 uh, already um, became the person, so to say, as we know him. Uh, now he started describing his work as that of a social contract uh, tradition. And so my, my answer to that is uh, twofold. Is that one... Um, as, as we talked earlier, Rawls saw various conceptions of justice as not differing in a great many ways. He thought that uh, um, there's a family likeness between different uh, conceptions of justice, that they share some of the principles, and perhaps, as he wrote, they, uh, they interpret these principles in a different way and, um, and add different weights to these principles. Now, fr- from my point of view, that is already... a a big difference, but Rawls uh, would describe this as still these principles are exhibiting a family likeness, so we should treat them as, um, you know, at least roughly uh, similar. Uh, and so, once you understand prince of moral conceptions in that way, I think it's much easier to say I'm starting to work from utilitarianism. Um, and we'll try to see where this uh, tradition leads me. But I might as well start from social contract theory, which is, uh, by the way, what Ross said. You, say we, you could start with a social contract theory, but given the, um, the important work that utilitarians, especially Sidwick, have done, Ross thought that there was value in trying to see where um, that philosophy would take us and 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 by the by 1962 i think he decides that the the core problems of utilitarianism are, are too great and in particular this actually comes from his earlier writings um but i think these the accumulation of these problems eventually lead ross to decide against working within utilitarianism and that's a problem of of slavery because in principle utilitarians uh utilitarianism can justify slavery in practice uh, the argument goes that it would not, but from Ross's thinking is that the problem is not even that utilitarianism can justify slavery, but that the very thought that we should even balance the interests of um, some 
the least advantaged, namely slaves and others, such as slave owners, um, is um, um, is such an unacceptable idea that it disqualifies the the theory uh, as a whole. So that's that's the first part of my answer. That even though Rawls thought that um, moral conceptions should be understood as exhibiting family likeness, still some core problems within utilitarianism prevent him from exploring the tradition further. And the second part of the answer uh, is a resource. The influence of uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and uh, his idea that the general will should spring from all of us and apply to to all of us, uh, as well as the claim that if general will is applied to a particular subject, it loses its uh, rectitude. It, it becomes a, a partial view, and I, I think that eventually Rawls's core, I'm sorry, Rousseau's core idea gives. Um, um, a guiding principle for Rawls's own original position, the, the thought experiment, in that what he tries to do from there on uh, is to detach ourselves from the various particular um, from various particular circumstances which lead us astray. It makes us lose uh, our uh, rectitude, and so that's why we have the original position in the end, in which we we as deciders do not know our race, our gender, our conception of the good, um, and so on. So maybe one thing to say is that now when we look back on that period, the kind of explanation um, I just gave um, might seem quite obvious, even if not fully satisfying. But when Ross was writing himself in this uh, in, the, in the late fifties and early and early sixties, I, I want to show that. Uh, this transition from seeing himself as utilitarian and seeing himself as the social contract theorist was um, a, a complicated one and not as obvious as we take it today. So, a, a 1971 theory of justice. This question is going to sort of ask you to uh, revisit your earlier co- comments and elaborate on them, perhaps. Why did Rawls hold that the first principle of justice in a theory of justice, this first principle of justice was a, a variety of distributive justice that rests on access to a system of liberties, especially for the least fortunate. Um, why, does, you know, why did he hold that that first principle of justice should trump the second principle of justice, that is, fair equality of opportunity, especially when the two principles came into conflict? Right, and I, th- I think you, you bring us to the problems which the looseness of uh, the principles of justice um, lead us to, the fact that these principles are bins of reasons. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, we see the kind of guidance which Rawls uh, provides um, by giving us these two principles of justice. And so my short answer to, the, to your question is that he thought that uh, this ordering of principles explain our intuitive judgments. But let me be more specific uh, from here on. So the first principle of justice regulates the distribution of various political rights, the right to vote, freedom of speech, freedom to associate, uh, and so on. And Rawls thought that these rights are so important that they cannot be sacrificed to economic and social rights, which are regulated by the second principle. So, even if we could increase the income, the wealth and income of the least advantaged persons in our society, we should not do so at the expense of taking away those persons' political rights. And and that's where the explanation comes in. This is not only because political rights might be an important part of someone's conception of a good life. So 
you can imagine that your good life is a is a political life and uh, in this case economic um, income is um, is a far less important uh, thing for you but also because these rights uh, are the best ways of protecting uh, a, a person's conception of a good life even if it's not a political life so to just to, to be able for example uh, to be able to um, express to speak about your practices and your practice your main beliefs such as religious beliefs you want to make sure that in our society protects these rights um, and since they are far more important than economic um, um, variables um, that's why the first principle of political liberties is uh, the most important one it trumps the second principle but even in the second principle um, there is an ordering so Rawls thought that equality of opportunity uh, should trump the, um, the the second part of a principle the difference principle so that even if we could show that taking away of equality of opportunity for some of us could improve the income of the least advantage this shouldn't be done so for instance if you uh, if you could see that uh, uh, our current well, if you could if you could see that political um, uh, in, uh, that inequalities in um, in our in our system, such as between uh, genders, races, and ethnicity, could actually help us lead to greater uh, economic wealth and income to the least advantaged persons, uh, that still should not be done because um, our um, wish to lead a certain life and to achieve a certain offices or positions that we um, might uh, want is more important than economic uh, in income and wealth uh, on its own. So even that within a second principle, there's ordering and the reason for that is uh, the choice of a life that we want um, to lead. So in, in, in some, though, though, as I said throughout um, this interview, we should view Ross's um, principles as um, bins of reasons which do not eliminate do not solve all kinds of problems um, so even within the first principle of justice there'd be problems between uh, even between all of our freedom of speech for instance um, so it the principles do not solve all kinds of problems but they do provide um, ordering to at least some of the main problems of our uh, societies and that's not all that we might want perhaps but it uh, it is something and I think Rawls would have been satisfied uh, with this much. Fair and duly noted. I have one uh, follow-up question. Uh, what's up for you? What's up for you next? Are you uh, are you going to uh, are you another project or what's going on with you next? Maybe a vacation? <laughs> well, Rawls is um, thinking about justice. Uh, made me interested in um, uh, in what we might call the borderline cases of uh, of justice or margins of justice, um, and in particular animal rights, because recent, especially liberal political thought, is uh, has argued actually drawing on Rawls's ideas as well uh, that we should extend justice not only to humans but to non-humans as well Ross himself did not think that he thought that our treatment of animals should be encompassed by the uh, uh, by the virtues of uh, compassion and humanity but recent political liberal political thinkers have argued that justice should be um, um, extended to them as well so that's my and that's my uh, current uh, interest um, the same way the issue of um, immigration um, uh, the current topic of uh, of today 
um, to see the various rights, and in this particular case, the right to one's culture, whether uh, preservation of one's culture could ever be a good reason for excluding immigrants or at least limiting the number of, of, uh, of, uh, of them. So all these questions, which I think lie at the margins of what justice is or what justice requires, um, have um, Rawls inspired these questions in me. And um, so I keep laboring on with, uh, with his own thought in one way or another. Well, thank you for being on the show today, Professor Galishanka. Oh, thank you so much. I, I very much enjoyed this. So the book is John, John Rawls, The Path to a Theory of Justice, out earlier this year by Harvard University Press. On behalf of Professor Galishanka and the New Books Network's History Channel, this is Ryan Tripp signing off. Please tune in next time.